Makako, you are listening to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Native Stories' vision is creating a source for pilina or connection to place, and we aim to activate Indigenous perspectives. Aloha kako wa onania loko inoa no papakuleo wahumeo no hoaoma Texas. Um, I'm Nanea Lo. I come from Papakuleo Oahu um, in the Hawaiian Kingdom, and I'm now residing in Texas. Uh, mahalo nui for joining us on another episode of Native Stories. So today we have Kyle Harmon. Kyle Harmon is from Salisbury, Maryland, and is a member of Nauticoke Nation. He currently lives in Columbia, Maryland with his wife, Kat, and their three children, um, Dominique, Preston, and Julius. Uh, Mr. Harmon was elected to serve as a tribal council member in January 2016. He was taken an active role in strengthening the community through education and wellness programs. His term ended in December 2018, and he was chosen to serve on the board of directors of Native American Lifelines Incorporated in January 2020. He is a veteran teacher and um, basketball coach of 14 years, and he has done consultation work and travels to schools, organizations, and communities across Turtle Island or Northern America where he teaches his traditional indigenous knowledge um, and native culture. He is the author of a book um, named Preston Lee Morris, A Soldier, A Man, A Father, and currently writing his second book, which is a timeline of Eastern Shore natives of the Delmarva Peninsula. Thank you for coming on Native Stories. So um, I guess you can kind of share with our listeners basically your roots, where you're from, and more about your people, the language. Yeah, so I am originally from, born and raised in Salisbury, Maryland, which is on the the eastern shore, uh, or some call it the Delmarva Peninsula. Uh, I I come from the Nanticoke Nation, and uh, originally we were known as the Nintego, uh, or the Tidewater people. Um, uh, other tribes, have, you know, we, they've referred to us as uh, the bridge, bridge builders um, because of our abilities to create floating rafts and, and bridges connecting people uh, across the waterways of the, the Chesapeake-Algonquin region. Uh, but our, our modern term that we go by is just Nanticoke, uh, which was derived from... Uh, John Smith, back when he sailed up the Nanticoke River, um, I, I think what he took from Nantego ended up being uh, Nantiquoc, and it just kind of evolved into Nanticoke now. Uh, you know, traditionally, uh, the stories that have been told and passed down says that, you know, our, our people started in the Nanticoke River, uh, which flows from you know, the Chesapeake Bay, almost to the Atlantic Ocean, um, you know, that that was where our central location was. But we branched out uh, up and down the, the eastern shore or the Delmarva Peninsula, which covers uh, Delaware, parts of Delaware, Maryland and Virginia from the Chesapeake Bay uh, to the Atlantic Ocean. We have our own language that has survived. Uh, it's, it's actually called the Nanticoke language. 
At this moment, we have about 300 surviving words. Uh, these 300 words were documented by uh, Dr. Daniel uh, Britton in 1792 with, by the request of Thomas Jefferson at the time. Um, you know, we those 300 words are the only thing that we have surviving left. Uh, over the years, our communities tried hard to revitalize our language. Uh, so we've we've had partnerships with other nations in the Chesapeake Algonquin region to try to help fill in the gaps. So we're working with you know some of the Piscataway language, um, some of the Powhatan, Paw Monkey, some of these other nations that are around the Chesapeake Bay who have a lot of similar words and sayings. Um, and we're all just trying to create this this language um, that we can speak to each other. Well, I'm glad you guys have like at least some of that that's surviving and you guys are slowly piecing everything together. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's been a labor of love to say the least. <laughs> um so in my introduction or the one that you gave me and I've shared, um, could you share with our listeners what is a tribal council? Yeah, so tribal council, I mean, it, it can have different meaning depending on the sovereign nation that, that it's talking about. Uh, I can only speak for, for our Nanticoke nation. Uh, so our, our tribal council is the governing body of the nation. So it's a for us, it's a group of leaders who are elected by the people in the nation to handle all the operations of the nation. So that can include the day-to-day -day task of, uh, for us, running our Nanticoke Indian Center and our Nanticoke Museum, which are both located in Millsboro, Delaware. Uh, council members also are responsible for the organization of our fundraising efforts, our outreach programs, uh, educational opportunities. Uh, basically, we are the elected officials to for our nation to and all of our talks and affairs with the state of Delaware and or the United States of America or, or the other sovereign native nations on Turtle Island. Uh, so we are basically in United States of America terms. Um, you know, we're we're the the politicians. Mm. How did you get involved um, or interested in that, in becoming so my, like a representative, you know? My story is is unique. Um, I always grew up in the Nanticoke community, but I was 45 minutes away from where most of our tribe uh, lived. So I grew up in Salisbury. Uh, most of our tribe nowadays uh, is in Millsboro, Delaware. So like I said, that's about 45 minutes away, but I would always go home on the weekends or, or visit grandparents and relatives down there. Uh, so I was always connected to it. And as I got older and went, went through college and everything, it was up in, when my grandmother on my father's side uh, became deathly ill. And one of our last conversations, you know, I was able to to talk with her and she basically broke down what the responsibility of being a, a Harmon was. Um, she told me that, you know, my 
my ancestors and my relatives had a responsibility of consistently being the leaders of our community um, all the way back to when our when our nation first originally organized. Um, one of my great grandfathers was the first elected chief. Um, he was the assistant chief at the time. So, you know, we've just had a long lineage of just leadership opportunities. For as long as I can remember, there was always a Harmon person on the tribal council. Uh, so she just wanted me to take pride in the heritage and the community. And she also explained to me how fortunate I was to, to be able to get such a, a quality education um, and to use that to help our people. So once she passed, uh, I was able to speak at her funeral. Um, and that was just kind of how everything got started. I, I started attending our, our monthly meetings. Uh, at the time, I was living in Baltimore, Maryland and driving two and a half hours down to Millsboro to do the meetings. Um, and, I, and I tried to make them as much as possible. I tried to do all of the activities that were down there. Uh, and then the opportunity came up in 2016 to, to serve on the council. Um, I was nominated by, by my peers and, and accepted the nomination and was able to be uh, one of the five members on the council. Um, so, you know, it's just a, a growing evolution. I, I think for me personally, I wanted to do something that my children would be able to look back on uh, and, and really take a sense of pride in. Um, so that was my driving motivation, my, my kids and, and the conversation I had with my grandmother. So if I had me ask, how old were you at the time when you um, got elected? Uh, let's see, 2016, I was 32 years old at the time. And were you like one of the youngest ones that were on the council? I wouldn't say the youngest, but definitely one of the younger ones to have been, in, at least in the, the recent memory from my family. Uh, I, there was another young tribal council member who was a few years younger than me that joined the same year. Uh, so I think he might be able to, to take that title. Uh, but we were definitely some of the youngest tribal council representatives, um, at least from the last couple of generations of, of leaders there. Awesome. Do you think that like within your, your nation and tribe or peoples um, that there is a lot of young activists these days um, going for titles, like wanting to be on council or being more uh, aware and educated about those kinds of things? I, I think there's a surge that's happening right now. Uh, I, I think our elders have done a tremendous job of empowering uh, the younger generation and, and making them feel comfortable and, and stepping into different leadership roles. Uh, I, I think particularly the Nanako community, the, the, the elders have worked tirelessly to establish relationships with the younger generations. And it's a topic of conversation that comes up all the time is how do we connect with the younger folks? How do we get them into the culture? How do we get them to take appreciation into their heritage? Uh, and, and now we're starting to see that stuff really play out. So, you know, my generation, for example, you know, 
some of us may not necessarily have always wanted to participate in our powwows and dancing and singing and drumming and, and wearing our regalia. Uh, but the family members kind of said, you know what, you're, you're going to do it and you're going to appreciate it when you get older. And as we got older, uh, we started to appreciate it. And now that some of us have gone down different paths, whether it's going to, to college and getting in higher education or going into the workforce or going into the military, um, we're, we're trying to take the training and the education and the lessons that we've learned in the outside world and, and bring it back to our community um, so we can help each other. And, and now that my generation is, uh, you know, we're, we're starting to have our own children now and things, and we're, we're just trying to create something that's, you know, that, that our younger people can be proud of. And when the younger the face they're able to see in a leader leadership position, I think the better off uh, the community is because then they have aspirations to hopefully follow in the footsteps or, or blaze their own path, something greater than what we're able to do. That's awesome. Can you share with our listeners of maybe like what, like some of the initiatives or spaces and, and like things that you've seen, um, younger folks in your community start to kind of pick up and, um, you know, hold in high regard. And you know what I mean? Like, I know like I have a few friends or even I just, um, interviewed, uh, this guy, Darren from, he's from Arizona and he started doing more beadwork and yeah. Like, do you guys have initiatives like that or like, small gatherings in different places to practice your cultural practices? Yes. So we are fortunate in, in our nation, in, in our community, we have a, a, a community center and a museum. Oh, uh, awesome. That, yeah. A lot of places sometimes, yeah. Like where I live in Hawaii, um, there's what's called Hawaiian homelands and it has like, you know, it's basically housing for Hawaiians but there's only one um, homestead. That's what we call it. I guess it's kind of like a mini reservation that has a community center. And we really need community centers as Native and Indigenous peoples because that's how we congregate and, you know, get to know our communities better and each other better. So, oh, yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, no. So that that community center, I mean, it's it's been there at least for 36 years in my life. Um, I, I've always found my way there. A lot of my generation, they've had activities there, you know, whether it's our, our, our nation meetings, um, birthday parties, you know, any kind of special gatherings, we, we're able to take advantage uh, of that community center. Um, and it's kind of the, the centerpiece of our community. Um, so that, that's been a big thing for us. Uh, you know the the museum has a has a ton of resources that's right there in our backyard uh you know the the good thing about our museum is that most of the artifacts that are in it they actually come from the different family lands that are around the 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 community down there so as we're plowing the fields or if we're walking along the river uh we we come across these artifacts and you know we're we're not sending them off to these different museums for display we're taking them you know, two or three minutes up the road uh, and putting them in our own space. So that that kind of stuff has just been is it's been great for us because, you know, at any given time, 
we can go into the Nanticoke Museum and I can see something that, you know, my great uncle made or something that came off of my great grandfather's land and, you know, things like that, that, you know, a lot of communities may not have that kind of access to. So for us, you know, that that was big as a kid growing up, like just being able to go down there and say, oh, hey, I'm going to walk the field and see if I can find something or we'll go out in the woods or, you know, we'll see different trees that were bent in the woods to point you in the direction of where the water was. And to hear those stories, I mean, it just it, it just enamored you as a child. And, it you know, it just something that sticks with me even to this day that that really helped us. Um, you know, our, our, we have a powwow every year, which is the second weekend in September. And it's, it's basically like a family reunion for us. Most of the people from the nation try to find their way home that weekend. And it, it's just the time for all of us to get together. And, you know, they share a bunch of stories and we, we eat, you know, great food. Um, so to have that environment as a child and then to grow up in it and then to bring your own children in it, um, it it's something special. Uh, and our folks have, they've really worked hard to create that kind of environment. Um, at the community center, they hold, we have drumming lessons that take place. Uh, we have dancing lessons that take place on different days. Uh, you know, they've even gotten together. They've, they've had regalia classes where, where people are come, are able to come in and work on their, their regalia that they can wear. Uh, so our, our community has been very fortunate is that our elders have taken an active role in, in just creating these spaces for us to take advantage of our, our culture. I love that. Um, so that all stemmed from the council, right? Like they appropriated funds to make the museum and the community center. Well, just to give you, just to go back even further. So mm -hmm. our, Community Center and our museum, they are actually uh, old schools. So back oh. in, the, in the 1800s, um, the state of Delaware tried to classify people. You were either white or you were black. Uh, and our folks, we didn't fit into either one of those two classifications. So they oh, okay. actually went... Peter, um, that's how... I like we connected with you for Native Stories. You is sharing the same thing too. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm I'm sure that's probably really relevant with a lot of the East Coast uh Native nations is that, you know, you you weren't you didn't fit in with the community that identified as black. Mm -hmm. You definitely didn't fit in with a community that was considered white. Um and back at the time, I believe it was in 1875, they created a law in the state of Delaware that, that taxed uh, black folks to raise money for their own schools. And that include they they included us in that term under black or colored, as they called it back in the day. Uh, and we didn't want that. So we went and we fought. And in 1881, we were able to get a, an establishment set up that allowed us to educate our own folks. And, you know, it was called the Incorporated Body. I think it happened March 10th, 1881. Um, and there was 
30 plus members of our community that signed that document um, and gave us our own right to open up our own schools to educate our own kids. So we did that. So our museum uh, was actually called the Harmon School uh, back in the day. And it's because it was donated by one of our Harmon family members, Levin Harmon. Uh, if you look in the Delaware State Records, it was known as Warwick 225 was the official name of the school. Uh, our Indian Center was also a school as well. Um, so we just were able to keep those properties. Um, you know, they exchanged hands and ended up going back to the state at one point in time in history. Uh, but then again, we kept fighting and we, we were able to reach a negotiation with the state of Delaware to get both of those properties back. And we turned, you know, the, the, the Harmon School into our museum, and then right down the road, we turned that other school into our, our uh, community center. So, you know, those buildings have been around. They've been on family property. Um, so those were two big accomplishments for the community and try to revitalize and, and keep our history alive. That's so awesome. I love that you share that story because it, I mean, it shows that when you have Native and Indigenous people that are civically active um in these systems um you there's so much that can be accomplished you know and stuff that we can still keep with us versus like you know you see some communities it's like terrible like everything's just taken away absolutely and you know the one one thing that really sticks with me about our history down there was that you know, my grandparents and stuff, they, they always told us that in Delaware and in Maryland, you know, you're, you're talking ground zero for colonization and racism. You know, it, it, it started, you know, the Eastern Shore was a hot spot for it. Uh, and our folks, they, they just fought hard. You know, they, there were reservations in place back in the colonial times. Uh, but our folks realized pretty early on that they were going to have to play this game in order to survive. And, you know, they they ended up purchasing thousands and thousands of acres of land and they were privately owned and they were just passed down from generation to generation. And that's still a practice that's being used today. Uh, you know, growing up. <laughs> Where Mills between Millsboro and the town of Lewis and Rehoboth, Delaware, you know, Nanticoke families owned the vast majority of that land. And as the land became more valuable and, you know, financial times hit, people would sell off bits and pieces of it or large plots. And that's where a lot of the commercialization and a lot of the homes being built now has gotten to the point where, you know, it's it's not as well owned by the tribe as it used to be. But we still have a significant chunk of property down there that that most of the families own. We don't we don't have the uh, reservation system in place like some of our other nations do up mm -hmm. and down Turtle Island. Um, yeah, that's something that struck me because um, I know there's like 475 federally recognized tribes, and I'm glad we get to talk to you about like. Yeah, your nation and your peoples. You guys aren't. You guys aren't federally recognized, right? No, we are not federally recognized. But you guys still have like, yeah, these systems in place that 
keep your guys' identity and that you guys own? Yes. Yeah, so we were we are a state recognized tribe by by Del- the state of Delaware. Uh, and for us, you know, the folks that have served on the tribal council before me and the community members, they they felt like federal recognition just wasn't their thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they they felt like the the process of going through it um, was too painstaking. They they felt the financial obligation going through that was something that they didn't want to endure. Uh, and the relationship that the Nanticoke Nation had with the state of Delaware was well enough where our folks were able to get the things that they that meant most to that meant most to them done without having a reliance of that nation to nation relationship with the United States of America and the Nanticoke Nation. Um, you know, our from the beginning of the formal recognition through the state, everything was about education and preservation. So when we were able to open up our own schools and then the, at the time the state was paying the salaries of the teachers and the administrators of those schools um, and with the fact that we owned our own land, uh, and which was right near the water and you know, it was a lot of farmland and woods. So a lot of our way of life, we were still able to live um and it you know the the racism that took place and still does take place today uh being in this community setting and having so many family members so close by uh we were able to lean on each other for support you know you know some folks were doing well monetarily than others some folks had more land than others but if you work together we were able to to coexist and survive and you know if you were hungry you could always find somebody's house to go to to get something to eat. If you needed something, if you needed help with the land or something like that or a job, there was always friends and family that you can lean on and rely on for that. So for us, federal recognition, it just didn't fit our needs at the time. And I think at this time it still doesn't uh, because we're, we're able to do a lot of the things that our mission statement states through what we have in place so far. Mahalo for sharing that. I like, I've always been, or since I've been in Turtle Island, I've been interested in um, hearing about that kind of story of, because I know that there's tribes and nations, but I just haven't met anybody yet, you know? So you're like the first one. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. I I think one thing too, it's a unique situation because Amongst Native people on Turtle Island, you know, there are some folks that look down on people that are not or communities that are not federally recognized or, you know, some people may think that we're not as Native as other nations who are federally recognized and whatnot. You know, Um, I noticed that because I was in the – or I'm in the Native American Political Leadership Program and so, as the name states, it has like Native American, Native Alaskan, Native peoples from this land, and um, yeah, or just people, other Indigenous Native people from here that I've talked to, and the Hawaiian Kingdom were not federally recognized. So, like, some of them would be like, "So, where do you guys get your money?" Or like, you know what I mean? You guys aren't like 
recognize. So like, what are you guys? You know what I mean? But same thing like you all, like we have a lot, a lot of things that we still have and like sovereignty in our own right that we do practice still. So yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's just a mechanism to try to further divide us. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for the longest time, I would always hear, oh, well, you know, these East Coast Native nations, they're, they're not as Native as other ones out West or up North or down South because, you know, are who we chose to have children with. You know, if they weren't distinctly from a native community, uh, you know, some other folks could have looked down on us for that. You know, whether somebody was lighter in skin tone or darker in skin tone, somehow they they bought that colonized narrative that if you weren't this purebred native, then you weren't really a native. And, you know, I, I think... I know these like systematic colonial divides are very like interesting to watch as like a native and indigenous person because, you know, there's like, we're all so diverse. So it, to me, it just makes sense that like, yeah, there's going to be tribes and nations and peoples that do things differently or look differently or, you know, have children with other people that are outside, but it doesn't make any of us less connected or less you know who we are and our ancestors so it's like yeah interesting yeah and it's just it's it's something that we have to rewire our brains Mm -hmm. about because you know if if you go through this colonized school system and things like that they they basically tell you what they want you to learn and they're not telling you the full story. You're you're getting the the whitewashed version of of history and things. Um, and you know we we've just taken we decided to to take our own path and we're going to write our own stories. And you know, I, me personally, I I don't care what color you look like, how light or dark you are. If you have an interest in our community and you're a good person and, and you're willing to to go through the struggle and, and face the adversity that we face, you know, you're, you're a brother and sister in the same fight. So, you know, I, I my personal opinion, I, I don't look at color or any of that stuff as a, as a way to say, Oh, I'm more native or less native than one or the other. Um, we're all struggling right now and we all need to be together. And like, like my people were known as being bridge builders. I, I want to build bridges, not walls. Um. So is there anything else that you wanted to share about maybe like how laws were signed to create your tribe or? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've been fortunate enough to to do a lot of history on my particular nation. Uh, and, you know, it, it goes back a long way. Um, you know, we, we've had treaties with the, the colony of Maryland or England and Great Britain, however you want to refer to them, uh, back in the 1600s and 1700s, uh, you know, we we have laws with the state of Delaware officially recognizing our our community as native. Um, but you know, we we've had treaties. You know, I, I found treaties that included not only England but France and Ireland as well in these treaties. Uh, you know, so it, it's just, it's really interesting to see how back in the day, 
you know, those nations like England, France, and Ireland recognize the Nanticoke people as their own sovereign nation. And they, they made an effort to, you know, make a formal agreement that was signed by all parties. And then when, you know, in the, in the late 1700s, when the United States of America decided to be the United States of America, well, they didn't recognize any of those treaties um, prior to that 1777 date. Um, so that's kind of, you know, and we had a lapse between early 1700s and the 1800s with that. Um, so just, you know, talking to some legal counsel, you know, those treaties from the 16 and 1700s mean nothing in today's terms, um, even though it shows that we were a sovereign nation. Um, you know, and even when I was on the council, we got a law that passed that just kind of officially said that we were, through the state of Delaware, a sovereign um, native nation because we had another one of our brother and sister tribes the Lenape Indian tribe of Delaware got their formal recognition during my tenure on the council. Um, and there was some, the clarity between our previous laws that were signed in and stuff. Um, it was just a lot of fogginess and cloudiness with it. And that, you know, so that was one of our goals was to just to make sure we had it as clear as possible through the state of Delaware, who we were. Um, so that way there was no questions about it. Um, so together, they reinforced our our laws that we had previously been involved in. And at the same time, uh, the other Native nation in the state of Delaware was formally recognized, too. So we, we have those in place, um, you know, even in 1881. So we, we get recognized. We have this incorporated body. We're able to do our own schools. Uh, they didn't necessarily want to call us Nanticoke. Indians, you know, Indians was a common phrase used back in the day. Mm -hmm. uh, so that didn't actually happen until the 1920s. Um, and we finally got that where the state of Delaware recognized us as, you know, descendants of Nanticoke people. Um, and, and then from there, that's just when everything we were in our boom, you know, we, we had of our had our own school systems. We had our, you know, our organization set up. Uh, you know, we basically tried to run with complete autonomy uh, up until modern times. That's super interesting to hear about that you guys had um, treaties with England, France, and Ireland because um, for me being a Native Hawaiian, it's interesting to learn about, yeah, like other peoples who sought out diplomacy like in other nations even back in the day. I'm surprised that it's not recognized at all. I mean, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised because it's America, but <laughs> like, that'd be cool for you. I mean, maybe later on or, you know, after this pandemic dies down, if you could like visit those places and see the actual treaties in their archives or their libraries. Yeah, I have that on my uh, to-do list. It's been on there for about five years now, but it's it's on there to get done. Uh, mm -hmm. If we ever get a chance to travel to those countries, just, you know, to go into their uh, their archives and be like, hey, can you pull this up? Because I, I've been to the one in Maryland, our archives in Maryland, and they've you know they've got that stuff 
moved online and I was able to try to get some of that stuff pulled out so I can see the original documents. Um, but all that stuff, I, you know, I'm trying to highlight and document in that that Eastern Shore timeline and I'm trying to put together. So it's it's a work in process, but it's, it's definitely something that we want to continue to explore. Yeah, I mean, because like the Hawaiian Kingdom, we had we were like really big on diplomacy, too. I think we had like 144 different treaties and consulates around the world. <laughs> um so there's there's actually I, I went to Hawaii a couple of years ago. I want to say four years ago, and my goal at the time was like, look, I don't want any of this tourist stuff. Like I want the nuts and bolts of what's going on. Um, so that's when I really dived into trying to learn more about what was happening over in Hawaii, and it's extremely impressive uh, the things that you know your ancestors and and, and community was able to do and how long they held off um, and and that diplomacy that they had. I mean, it, it's extremely impressive. And it's something that I think the world needs to know about because, I mean, for a point there in time, you know, you, you had a lot of respect worldwide and, you know, you guys upheld that for as long as you could. <laughs> Mahalo. I know. I'm very proud. And I believe it's there. It's just like a lot of indigenous and native peoples like we've been oppressed and we've been you know colonized and suppressed our knowledge about our histories and our identities but i feel that like you said like there's just like this resurgence and there's like more accessible ways to access those knowledge systems and connect with other native and indigenous peoples to like you know what I mean? Spark that interest about your, your own people when other people talk about their histories and their ancestors like we're doing today. And like, and another thing about like native stories, like how you said you went to Hawaii, um, that's kind of how we stemmed about is that my boss went to, I forget where she went to someplace in Europe. I think it was Italy or something. And they had a mobile app. And, you know, she could go walking in different places and those places had stories about those, those areas. And it was from native, their native peoples. So that's kind of like what native stories aims to do is like every story that we capture and truth telling that we have, we pin it to a place on our mobile app so that when a person visits, like where you're from, um, it'll pop up, your story will pop up so they can hear about that kind of history. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. We kind of talked uh, maybe like a, a little while ago about how you're a teacher. Can you share like how you kind of got into that? Was it like something that you always aspired to be? Um, <laughs> well, I was, I was in college and for the first semester, I was an accounting major. Uh, I get through the first semester and I'm I'm looking, I'm like, do I really want to spend my life sitting behind a desk, crunching numbers and all of this stuff? And I'm like, no, I can't fathom being able to do this the rest of my life because everybody was saying, oh, you become an accountant, you make good money, you got a good life for yourself. And, you know, my heart just wasn't in it. So I'm I'm thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. And I was playing college basketball at the time and running 
track and field at, at Salisbury University. And I'm like, I've spent my whole life playing sports. So why not do that? And, you know, we were I was fortunate that Salisbury University had a physical education program. And I'm looking at the classes that I had to take and whatnot. And I'm like, oh, I can do this. So, you know, that second semester of my freshman year, I switched over to, to phys ed. And, you know, I, it, it's been a dream ever since. You know, I, I, I've been lucky being a, a physical education teacher that I can wear sweatpants and a hoodie and basketball shorts and shoes <laughs> pretty much every day of my life. Uh, and once I started getting in it, I'm like, yeah, this this is me right here. Uh, so I finished my career in basketball and, you know, I wanted to continue to be around basketball. So in order for me to coach, the best way I could do that was to be a PE teacher. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I was coaching college. Ba- I got an opportunity to coach college basketball uh, at St. Mary's College in Maryland, and I did that. And that's when I got my first teaching job. And you know that the hours worked out perfectly, so I could I could teach during the day, be done early in the afternoon, and then I can jump fully into coaching basketball. And, you know, being a teacher, I didn't I didn't think I would be into this still teaching 14 years later. I thought I would just be a full time basketball coach. Uh, But I I think my calling is working with these young people um, and and being able to do it. So I've been in the public school systems. I've been in the inner city. I've been in a real rural area. uh, And now I'm a I'm at a independent private school in Baltimore City called the Friends School of Baltimore. And I'm finishing up my seventh year there. And, and I'm also uh, the, the varsity head basketball coach there as well. And we, we just finished our third year coaching the basketball team there. Um, so, you know, I, I've been fortunate that I was able to take skills that I've acquired over my life and have them translate into something that provides a paycheck for me uh, and also helps provide for my family. But it gives me a chance to give back to people that aren't necessarily in my family. Mm-hmm. You know, my I had a thing on my desk that said, why do you teach? And I, I put it in this bright red or bright pink uh, note card so I could always see it. And, the, you know, early on in my career, my, my answer was always so I could coach basketball. Uh, but now as I've evolved, um, I teach because, uh, you know, I, I think I can make an impact. And I, and I think having a native voice in a predominantly non-native setting uh, gives me an opportunity to teach people about the native culture through physical education and through the game of basketball and, and all the other life lessons that come in between all that stuff. So that, that's why I do it. Yeah, I love I love that you share that because. Um, I have a lot of conversations with a lot of random people and native peoples and, or yeah, non-native peoples. And they're always like, yeah, like some people don't like, they think that native peoples don't exist or it's like, we're like a thing of the past. But I always like to share that, you know, there's native and indigenous people everywhere in all different types of capacity. And the things that we do is always going to be native and it's, us doing those things is a native thing and it's sharing, um, 
yeah, small lessons, small things that are part of our culture with others that might not be native, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, the one thing that I've been fortunate enough is that my role at my school, which is a friend school of Baltimore now, they, they've actually allowed me to step outside of just the traditional physical education teaching model. And, you know, I've been able to sit in on religion classes. Uh, I've been able to go through from pre-K all the way to 12th grade classrooms and history and English and math and science and talk about things that have a native narrative, uh, which has never happened in a lot of spaces. So, you know, to, to have that opportunity, you know, I, I've, I've embraced the fact that a lot of times in the school system, I may be the only native voice in the room or on campus. Uh, and I just try to represent the best that I can. And even when I make my mistakes, you know, I, I let them know that, hey, we're, we're all learning here. This is nothing you know, that, that's been written out that you have to follow point by point. Um, it's a learning process. And, and to be able to learn through teaching uh, has been great. And I think the impact on the kids, particularly at my school and on my team, has just brought us all together in times where, you know, there's a great deal of divide trying to happen. So, you know, I, I think it's been very beneficial for our, our immediate community at our school to to have a native voice in a, in a lot of different settings, not just a physical education one. Definitely. How has, um, since COVID-19 hit, how has that changed? Um, you know, you as a teacher and I know that you travel to, to for work, um, outside of just coaching and teaching. Um, how has COVID-19 kind of affected, you know, your peoples and your family dynamic and your teaching dynamic and all of that? Uh, it's, it's been, it's been a, a different kind of journey that I've ever had in my life. Uh, I can put it that way. I, I think for my immediate family, it's probably, it's been the best thing in my perspective that it's happened since I've had kids and, and gotten married uh, because I've never been able to spend this much amount of time with my children and my wife uh, because of the teaching responsibilities and the coaching responsibilities and the tribal council responsibilities and all the other things that I have going on, the many hats that I've been fortunate to wear uh, that comes at a price. And, you know, with my native community being two and a half hours away from where I live, um, it poses a challenge. So anytime I want to go see them, it's a five hour trip round round trip. So, you know, I, I've been able to spend a lot more time with my kids. Uh, we've been doing homeschool here uh, at the house. So one of my life goals was to try to help set up native curriculum to not only be incorporated into the public and private school systems, but to try to possibly get a Native American charter school established. So this has really allowed me to hone in on curriculum that can be introduced and implemented. Uh, and I get to use my my children as the, the young examples here. So my kids are seven, five, and three. 
And we're just trying different things. You know, we're, we're really working on the Nanticoke language, but we're also, you know, environmental science and math and just our thought process towards, you know, how we treat women or the role women had in society and all that kind of stuff. It's been great to introduce it. Um, as far as my family that doesn't live in my house, uh, it's challenging because we're right now, at least in Maryland and Delaware, or Delaware in particular, we can't cross into the state of Delaware mm-hmm. without having to stay there for at least two weeks. So my, my tribal community in Delaware, uh, I'm not able to see right at this particular moment, but we try to stay actively uh, engaged through, you know, video calls and, and text messages and all that stuff. Um, but you know, I think all in all, it it's brought my family closer together because, you know, we're we're having a great time right now. Nobody's getting on each other's nerves. You know, we're all still happy. Um, we have our moments where we need our space, uh, but it, it's really allowed me to focus on the things that are most important in my life, which, which is my family. Um, as far as professionally, you know, I, I still teach. I I teach online classes. PE classes. So I still have my usual class load. Uh, I'm actually working out a lot more than I had previously because, you know, when I'm on campus, I was able to just, hey, you know, let's do this as a warm up and I'll teach these skills and we do this, that and the other. Well, now it's more just like, all right, let's let's get a good half hour of physical activity in. And when you're doing that two, three, four, I actually had five classes the other day. Wow. Uh, I, I feel like I'm going to have to get a new wardrobe here soon because I'm dropping some pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's that been good. You know, but I, I do miss my students at school. You know, I, I think the relationships, but a lot of my life I, I really spent on trying to build positive relationships with a lot of people that I interact with and not being able to do that in a school setting uh, it, it's been difficult because I, I love the kids. I love being able to, you know, give high fives and all that kind of stuff and ask, you know, questions in person so you can see it. It's a little bit different uh, via Zoom, Skype and all the other video platforms that we have to do stuff. Um, but we're, we're, we're getting around to it. Yes, definitely. This new like video chatting world. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So wrapping up, um, what do you see the future looking like for your peoples uh, and Native and Indigenous people in general? This is kind of like a question I like to ask everybody. Well, I think for Native people, particularly after this chaos is, you know, over and done with, I I, I think that we're at a point where we just have to, I don't want to say take what's ours, but we've got to be very stern in how we approach moving forward. You know, I, I personally, I feel like, you know, we have to put our own systems in place. You know, we, we can't rely on outside entities for support. And what I mean by that, like if you want to start a school or if you want to build a self-sustaining community, 
then you got to find like-minded people that are willing to help and support you to do it. And sometimes it's not necessarily going to be members of your nation or members of a neighboring nation. Sometimes you're going to need people that just have that same mindset, even though they may look or act differently from you. Um, I think we have to get back to more traditional ways of living. Uh, I know personally, uh, the comforts of a colonized lifestyle have been great for myself and my family. Uh, but when you think about what's most important, you can do away with a lot of that, the luxuries that we are granted right now. Uh, so I think getting more connected to the land, um, you know, revitalizing our languages, but just trying to get young people to be more active and in, in taking leadership roles. I think that's big. And, you know, I think sports is a great way through that, uh, you know, because it, it just unites people in a way that a lot of other things aren't able to do. So seeing these native athletes really step into the limelight and really get into some societal issues outside of just their, their professional sport, I think has been tremendous. Um, and, and we're building off of it. You know, we, we've been fortunate enough here in the Chesapeake region. We have uh, a native, not na well, a few natives that play professional lacrosse on the Chesapeake Bayhawks. And to have a native community come out and support them frequently uh, has been great. And it, it gives my young kids an opportunity to see a professional athlete who looks like them, who acts like them, who comes from a similar background as them, uh, and it empowers them to do more. So, you know, I, I just want to see us continue to make strides. I think we have, I think the women are the leaders moving forward. Uh, they always have been, at least with my nation and a lot of the other nations on the East Coast, uh, the women, they dictated everything. They were the hardest workers. Uh, they they sustained the community. They built the families. Uh, they maintained a lot of the things that happened in the community. So having them reclaim their power, I think, is very important. And I think we're starting to see more and more of that now. Um, so we just want to keep building on that. You know, I, I I think we that's the role we have to go to. I, I mean, I identify as a male, but I've also seen what has happened with when you have a male dominated system and structure. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that we add females into the mix and the more females that we have in leadership roles, I think we get a, a better perspective on what we need to do to move forward. So I'm all for that. I want to see that. I, I try to empower my daughter that, you know, she can be any in, in everything that she wants. She just has to work hard and be focused and and help other people along the journey. And I think once we get there as Native people, helping each other, not just, you know, I, I don't want to be known for just helping the Nanticoke Nation, you know, I want to be known for helping everybody, you know, and and I want other people to have that same ideology. You know, it, it's great to raise your individual nation up as natives. But if you can do what some of our other great native leaders have done throughout history and bring us all together and many communities together, that's the statement that we need to do. And that's the thing that most most people, non-native people are afraid of is that we could actually unite and become very strong. Um, 
so that that's the goal and, and that's what we're going to try to do and even though you know we're stuck indoors right now and we have this social distancing thing uh we're able to still create relationships with people that don't live next to us and we can provide an opportunity that our children you know or that i didn't have that my children can have and so on and so forth boom definitely a cosign um (laughs) (laughs) so and lastly uh if anybody maybe wants to get in contact with you to collaborate or just yeah get in touch with you um did you want to share with us maybe your social networks the email or how they can reach you yeah uh i'm on facebook you can just you know Kyle Harmon, if you type that in, hopefully that pops up. Uh, I also have uh, Instagram, which is one of my business names. It's uh, X Factor Sports 22, all one word. Um, that, that can get me on Instagram. Uh, I do Twitter and all that other stuff, but that's more like for my basketball program and business stuff. The, the Instagram and Facebook are probably the, the, the best ways to get a hold of me. And, you know, I can also be reached via email. Uh, my email address is coachharmon22 at gmail.com. Okay. Um, so mahalo, Nui, for sharing your story with, with us and Native Stories. Um, if you all want to further connect with us, please do just follow us on Facebook and you can search Native Stories for daily updates on native kind mail or things, um, please download our mobile app and listen to us on all streaming podcast outlets. You can search Native Stories and make sure to share um, us with all of your friends, family, lovers, and whoever you want. Um, if you have a story to share with us, make sure to go on our webpage, nativestories.org, and hit us up. Um, Native Stories prides ourselves in being your resource. And the more you share, the more of our stories um, get shared with others and the world. So sending tons of the healing vibes to you all. Uh, love and prosperity. Ahuyo. Until next time. <laughs>